Friends, uh, it's my joy to be part of this uh, series on John, and I appreciate Jeff giving me a chance to do that. We're going to look today at, at John chapter 4, a very familiar passage. And as, John said, or as Jeff said to you in the very first message, he said, the gospel of John had a profound effect on his life. Then he talked about his friend Chris, the high school student, and the gospel of John was basically used by God to bring him to faith in Christ. Uh, most of you don't know that I came to faith in Christ through a, through a gospel study on the book of John. Uh, I was 19 years old. I had spent uh, seven years in mental illness. My life was a total mess. Don't have time to tell you that story, but it was an absolute unbelievable mess. No one to talk to and no one to help me. And uh, I came out of a little Bible study at the University of Arizona campus one night, one Thursday night in 1971, and I picked up this piece of paper, which I still have today. It's a guided study on the Gospel of John. And I read the questions, and I read the verses, and I answered the questions, and all alone by myself in my bedroom in Tucson, Arizona, I trusted Christ because of the Gospel of John. Got great generosity to me that I got a hold of that piece of paper and that I had a Gospel of John and was able to study it. So this is a book that will change your life if you will immerse yourself in it. Now, as Pastor Jeff said, the core purpose of the book, John 20, verse 30 and 31, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. Believing, you may have life in his name. We're looking today at uh, John chapter 4, and I invite you to turn there with me. I'm going to read to you a, a, a long story and uh, if the sermon has nothing of value, at least you had the gospel read to you, which is a great, great thing. Here's the best part of what we're doing today. We're going to read this story. Maybe familiar to you. It's the story of the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 1. And uh, let me invite you to think about God's book together with me today. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, parentheses, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, in parentheses. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the city of, of Samaria called Sychar. And, and just for a geographic sake, this is about exactly 30 miles due north of Jerusalem where he is, where he is coming to, to meet this woman. He came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that J Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So uh, scholars say it's either 6 p.m. If, if John is using Roman time or it's high noon if he's using Jewish time, one of those two times. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, Ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman. Parentheses, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And parentheses. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? 
who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty nor come all the way out here to draw. And he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Uh, it's a mountain called Mount Gerizim, right there at Samaria, uh, 30 miles north of Jerusalem. <clears throat> the Samaritans worshipped there rather than down in Jerusalem, at the temple in Jerusalem. <clears throat> she said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare to us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At that point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he was speaking with a woman. Yet no one said to him, What do you seek, or why do you speak to her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then the harvest? But I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. A lot of scholars think that Jesus was directing them to look at this crowd of people coming out from Sychar and saying, here's a, here's a white harvest. These people need to know about me and look up and, and see who's coming here. Already he who is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, for that he, for that he, do, he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and other reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. <clears throat> Verse 39, please. From that city, many Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet is not with, is, has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. May I pray for us a moment, friends? <clears throat> 
Father, we do bless you for this good day and for this good book. Thank you for recording this story and for preserving it for us for 2,000 years. Lord, we need to understand what happened. I pray that by the power of your Spirit we would respond to you, that we would be people who are not just hearers, but we are doers of your word. And so we rest our time with you, and we need your guidance, and we need your Spirit to help us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Friends, I want to repeat a lie this morning that Satan told to you. I'm very confident he told you. He told me. And the lie is this. You cannot do evangelism. You cannot share Christ. You don't know enough. You're not mature enough. You don't care enough. You're too scared. You wouldn't know what to say if someone got in an argument. You cannot share Christ. That's a lie that Satan told to you. He told it to me when I first came to faith, and I believed that lie for 20 years. For 20 years, I wouldn't open my mouth about Jesus because I was scared, and I didn't know what to say. And so I would never share Christ, and I would never in any way open my mouth to try to be a part of that. And the reason he told you this lie was he doesn't want people to trust Christ, and he doesn't want you to be obedient, and he doesn't want you to have a front-row seat when someone comes from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He doesn't want you to experience the joy of ministry. He wants you to feel guilty. That's why he told you that lie, and that's why he keeps telling you that lie. And so the lie is very simply, you cannot share Christ. Here's the truth. You can share Christ. The truth is, you can share Christ, and you can share the gospel clearly, and you can do it with effectiveness, and you can do it with joy, and you can do it without having a heart attack. You are capable of that. That's the truth. Because Jesus said to you that you should share Christ. He said to me I should share Christ. And he doesn't tell us to do stuff we can't do. God doesn't mock us by telling us to do stuff we can't do. So very simply, friends, uh, I want to share today some of the, uh, the high-level uh, truths of John 4. There's, there's layers and layers of meaning in John 4, and we don't have time to do them, plus I'm not capable of doing them. Uh, Pastor Jeff could do them for you some other week. But we're going to just look at the highlights of what's happening in this interaction in John 4. And then at the end of this message, I'm going to share with you uh, some, some trade secrets of professional evangelists. I'm going to share with you some trade secrets that truthfully make it easy to do evangelism, that make you effective in evangelism that allow you to do evangelism without having a heart attack. Now, a bunch of you are thinking, my Gibson, you've, you've gotten pretty bold now that we're not signing your paychecks and you're making all these, all these promises. <clears throat> yeah, I've gotten extremely bold. Now that I'm on Social Security, I've gotten extremely bold. And <laughs> I, I, I believe with all my heart, friends, that the lie is you can't do evangelism. And the truth is you can. The truth is that you have the ability and, and, and you know what you need to know to share Christ the question today is, do I believe Satan or do I believe God? Sorry to be that frontal about it. <laughs> That's just the truth. You can do this, and God gives you every, every resource you need to do this. So the essence of John chapter 4, it's another outpouring of God's glory through his son, Jesus Christ. This, this, this God-man who is full of grace and truth, another outpouring of his glory, and his glory is shown in his rescue of a woman from Samaria and his rescue of an entire village from Samaria. 
And we know that he's a glorious God because he reaches in and what he does today. So here's the event. <clears throat> here's what happened. A cross-cultural evangelist shows up in a very bad part of town, and he leads a broken woman to faith in himself. So it happened, as I said earlier, in Samaria, 30 miles north of Jerusalem. It happened with a Samaritan woman. So the Samaritans, as you probably know, you may know, are, are uh, uh, basically, a, for, for lack of a better word, they're a mixed breed, a half-breed group of people who are half-Jewish and half-Babylonian median because after the deportation in 722 of the northern kingdom, not all of the Jewish people were taken out. Some were left there. And then some Babylonians were brought in, and some Median people were brought in, and these, these groups intermarried, and they ended up being the Samaritans. The thing about the Samaritans was these, these were people who were very, very much uh, Jewish. They believed uh, all the Jewish doctrine with one exception. Two exceptions. Number one, they thought you should worship at Mount Gerizim instead of Jerusalem. And they also believed that they were the true line of the Jewish people. That they, that not, not the other line of Jews were the true line, but they themselves were the true line. And there was a huge amount of, of hostility between them and the Jewish people. Uh, they, they opposed the, the resettlement of the Jewish people after captivity. Uh, they, fought, they fought with Assyrians to help fight against the Jews. And the Jews retaliated in 128 uh, B.C. by burning down their temple at Mount Gerizim. There is massive animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. Uh, they are despised and hostile, and they don't care for each other at all. And so this is the setting that Jesus is coming into. Cross-cultural evangelist shows up in a bad part of town and leads a broken woman to himself, along with a whole bunch of other broken people out of the village. Here's the lost person he encounters. This is a woman who is broken. This is a woman who is hurting. She is ostracized. She is utterly lost. Now, friends, it's easy in this passage to, to focus on her brokenness and her sin, and that was there. But I want you to also understand that we have our brokenness and our sin, and God's major focus is on His grace and our rescue. His grace and our rescue, and that's the way Jesus went about this. So this woman is a Samaritan. Already said that she's a second-class citizen in the eyes of Jewish people. She is a woman who in the eyes of Jewish rabbis of that time, not in the eyes of Jesus, but in the eyes of Jewish rabbis, uh, that makes her an additional second-class citizen in the world of God. She was immoral. She's been married five times. She's currently living with someone to whom she is not married. <clears throat> her relational life is an absolute dumpster fire. It's a complete mess. You can't hardly imagine it getting worse. Beyond that, this is a woman who is ostracized. She comes to the well by herself, not when the other women come to draw. This is the kind of girl who eats her lunch alone at school. This is the kind of girl who gets a rock throwing at her just for walking past. Uh, she's certainly a, a quite a lonely person because of her past. She is a very broken person. Broken spirit, broken promises, broken dreams, broken hopes, broken heart. Uh, can you imagine the number of nights this woman has cried by herself somewhere when the latest man left her? Can you imagine the pain this woman has been through over the decades, probably by now, as she's on her sixth relationship? So she's a person who clearly has been in pain. And she's also a person who is looking for meaning and fulfillment. She is hungry for something. Because in her brokenness, she engaged Jesus 
fully. In her brokenness, she was willing to hear, what's he have to say? What's he going to help me with? She reflected on what he said. So basically, a broken woman who's going about a lot of self-medication. She's writing her own prescription to make herself feel better. I don't know if her prescription was a new man, or if it was sex, or if it was a better relationship. Whatever her prescription, she was writing it for herself, and she was trying it because every time she tried it, there was a little hit of dopamine, and she felt better for a little while. It's, it's like we can do. We can write ourselves a prescription. I don't feel good. I think I'll watch some pornography. I don't feel good. I think I'll buy something new. I don't feel good. I, I, I think I'll have a cigarette. I think I'll have a joint. I think I'll have a drink. I'll think I'll have whatever. Whatever my medication of choice is, <clears throat> I write my own prescription. And I take the prescription, and I have a hit of dopamine, and I feel better for a little bit. This woman had been doing this for a long time, feeling better for a little bit, but not feeling better for a long time. In addition to all that, she was hiding. She tried to divert Jesus. Let's get into a geographical conversation. I don't really want to talk about my relationship with you, my relationship with God. I'd rather, I'd rather get into this geographical argument with you. But the beautiful thing is, friends, she was responsive to Jesus. She thought about what he said. She thought about what he said. Friends, I'm convinced that if people in our culture would think about what Jesus said, there could be a huge, huge, massive change. So here's this woman who's concerned for her own well-being because she thought about what Jesus said. Here's the amazing part. She was also concerned for the well-being of the people who ostracized her because she went right into town and said, hey, I think I might have found the Messiah. She cared about these people. And she walked in there and said, please, come, come take a look at this. So Jesus, in his kindness, reaches into this life of this broken woman. Jesus specializes in broken people. Thank God. Because that made him specialize in me. That makes him specialize in you. Jesus specializes in broken people. We're going to talk a little bit more about his heart in a moment. So that's the woman that he encountered. Here's the evangelist. He is a man, capital M. He is a man who was tired, compassionate, truthful, and engaging. That's the evangelist that showed up that day at the well. Let me, let me reiterate, this is cross-cultural evangelism. This is two different religious beliefs. This is a Jew and a Samaritan. And friends, you live in a cross-cultural town. I, I understand that. I lived in this cross-cultural town for 12 years. But it is possible to share Christ in a cross-cultural setting and to be very clear and to be very helpful to people in that situation. The evangelist in, encountered this woman and he engaged her when he was tired. He was tired. What do you do when you're tired? You just want to get alone. Friends, I did a lot of travel at East West Ministries, and I would come home from these faraway countries, and I would get in my plane seat on my last ride home, and I'm exhausted. And I'm just saying, dear God, either let this seat be empty or let it be occupied by a very quiet person. And I'm just, what I want to do is I want to stare mindlessly at a, at, a, at a Woodstock documentary and hopefully drift off to sleep. And, of course, usually the most talkative person on the planet sat down next to me, and i gotta, I got to ask myself the question. Will I put on my headphones and, and just give them the message, I don't want to talk to you, or will I engage them, even if I'm tired? Jesus was tired, but he cared about the woman enough to say, I'm going to press through on this. 
He suffered the cross, Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy set before him. I'll go through this pain because I can see on the other side billions of people trusting in my name by the sacrifice I gave. And he pressed through and he worked through that even though he was tired. Secondly, this was Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. This woman walks out to the well, encounters the man who wants some water, and she encounters the Son of God. Second person of the Trinity, been alive forever, 100% God, 100% man, suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the, the Passover lamb of Exodus, the one who's going to pay for her sins and for mine and for yours, this brilliant, beautiful, truth and grace man is who she encountered. She didn't encounter a freshly minted rabbi who was going to argue with her about Jerusalem or Gerizim. Ever gone into a store, friends, and, and you need something that you know nothing about, and you ask the first person, the first clerk you encounter, and say, I need X. And they start talking to you, and within three seconds, you know, they have no clue. They just have no clue how to fix my phone, or no clue how to find my product, or no clue what my question is. And I mean, it's always, I'm, I'm always depressed out of my mind because I think, oh my goodness, you know. And then within, you know, a minute or two, they'll call over somebody who knows. And the person who knows will say, oh, yeah, you need to buy this product. You stall it this way. Here's the website. You can look at this YouTube. It'll tell you exactly what to do. If you have problems, here's the number. You can call their tech support. And you go out of there saying, okay, that's what I needed. That's what I needed. This woman didn't encounter a freshly minted rabbi. <laughs> she encountered the Son of God. And he helped her because he knew exactly what she needed. And he was... He was more than capable of helping her. He, she encountered a man who was compassionate. He was compassionate toward everybody he ever encountered. Jesus never encountered one person, no matter how broken or how belligerent, about which he said, I really don't care about you. He just had this heart for people that went out to them, and whatever they needed, he gave it to them. If they needed confrontation, he gave it. Gave it. If they needed a withered hand healed, they gave it. If they needed their child raised from the dead, he gave it. If they needed food, he gave it. If they needed truth, he gave it. Whatever they needed, he gave it to them. Because their lives mattered to him, and, and he just wept. Wept over Lazarus. Wept over the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His heart went out to him. He said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. He felt compassion for the rich young ruler. I mean, I... Did everybody encountered? Samaritan woman, person with a withered hand, person demon-possessed, they just all mattered to him. Everybody he encountered, he cared about, and everybody he encountered, he dealt with, and he dealt with them without condemnation. He dealt with them with grace. Grace, friends, is favor that's desperately needed, completely undeserved, given at great cost to God, and given to me unconditionally. And God dealt with every person with grace. Jesus dealt with every one of them with grace. He dealt with me with grace. I didn't deserve anything, but I had desperate need. The grace he gave me was extremely expensive. John 1:14. he's full of grace and truth. It says to us in Hebrews 4:16, when you come to the throne of God, you've come to the throne of grace. You haven't come to the throne of condemnation. This is a massive model for us. Am I coming to the people out in the world that I encounter with condemnation or with grace? He came to her with grace. He came to me with grace. He engages us with grace. That's how he calls me to engage. But he was also truthful and straightforward. He said what's true. Truth and grace are not contradictory to each other. Truth 
is part of grace. And so he was, a, he was a man who was willing to say what's true. He was very truthful. Listen, friends, I don't think Jesus was nice. Nice is the kind of person who goes along to get along. They won't raise any objection. They won't say any hard things. They will never disagree. They're just nice. I don't think Jesus was nice. He was kind. He was safe. But I would never call him nice. I don't ever want to be a nice person. <laughs> Please cut that out of the tape. <laughs> I don't ever want to be a nice person. Friends, I was, I, I, Kathy and I were at a, a play a few weeks ago in, in Boise, and there was this elderly couple, in, both in walkers, are having huge trouble getting into their chairs. And so I got up out of my seat, and I walked down, and I helped them get their chairs and put their walkers away and arrange it all. And as I was walking back to my chair, this woman said, you're such a nice man. I just cringed. I didn't want to engage her with this conversation at that point. I just said, well, thank you, ma'am. But I don't want to be a nice person. I want to be kind and truthful and safe. And Jesus was exactly that to this woman. He, he directed her to himself, and he avoided the geographical arguments. He directed her to himself. Friends, a huge key to evangelism is let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about the gospel Let's, let's refuse to get into all the other stuff. And I, I have learned when I do evangelism, if somebody wants to talk to me about Mount Gerizim, which they never do, if they want to talk to me about some other temple, if they want to talk to me about some other thing, I say, let's set that aside just for a second. Let, let me talk to you about this. Uh, w- one preacher said, in every sermon I ever gave, I made a beeline for the cross. And friends, in every gospel conversation, make a beeline for the cross. Set this stuff aside to the best of your ability and just tell them the truth about Jesus. Make sure that when you walk away, whether they've responded or not, they heard what's true about Jesus, what he did and what he's offering and what he's asking of them. Whether the other stuff ever gets addressed, hopefully it can set to the side. Make a beeline for the cross. Jesus is the source of living water. He says to this woman, basically, if you have bad water, you're going to die. If your drinking water is bad, you're going to die. If your spiritual water is bad, you're going to die. It will take a little while, but you're going to die. So Jesus said, I want to give you, I want to be the source for your deliverance. I want to be the source for your fresh water. I want to be the one, the the no other name under heaven by which a man can be saved. That's me, Jesus said to her. And if you get a chance to talk to somebody, make a beeline for the cross. Last thing I want to say about this evangelist was he was focused and on task. Focused and on task. He said in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I get nourishment by obeying. He was exactly doing what the Father had told him to do. He was right on task. Friends, when I I was in eighth grade, uh, I, I had to take a typing class, and I was no good at it, and I didn't like it, and I was undisciplined. We had these typewriters that had a screen in front of them, and and it was semi-electric, and you could type, and then the words would come up on the screen. And I would go to class every day as an eighth grader, Denver, Colorado, and I would kind of lean on my table, and I'd go, KJ, 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 KJ. And I'm just messing around, making pictures with this stuff. And one day while I'm doing a KJ, 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 KJ thing, my chair just jerked with this incredible jerk and just scared the daylights out of me. And this teacher leaned down, and she said in my ear, You get your hands on the home keys, and you learn how to type, and you do it right now. Scared the tar out of me. (laughs) 
put me on focus, put me on task. The only thing I still use from high school is typing. I'm deeply grateful for that woman. I, I mean, if I see her in heaven, I will thank her. She put me on task. And Jesus was always on task. It was always in his mind. What's the Father up to? And therefore, what should I be up to? This was the, this was the evangelist. This was the man, capital M, that she encountered at the well, friends. So, at the risk of insulting your intelligence, let me say this again. You can do evangelism. <clears throat> and you can do it well. And you can do it without a heart attack. And I'm going to share with you some trade secrets of professional evangelists. I'm going to share with you some insider knowledge. Uh, we, Kathy and I needed a new garage door opener a few years ago in Dallas, and this guy came to put it in. And he was so incredible and so professional, I literally sat on the step in my garage and watched him put the whole thing in. It was stunning. In one hour, I had a brand new, gorgeous garage door opener. It would have taken me 14 hours. I probably would have harmed myself in the process. It was amazing. <clears throat> he was a professional. He was an insider. He knew the tricks. It was stunning to watch him. I mean, a person needs a life probably if they're watching a garage door be installed, but my goodness, this was amazing to me. So friends, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some, some trade secrets, some insider tips. You don't need the gift of evangelism to be successful in evangelism. Let me ask you to think about these with me. Number one, first of all, you need to understand what is successful evangelism. Here's what it is. Share Christ clearly and ask a person to trust Christ and leave the results to God. Successful evangelism is not defined by bringing somebody to faith. It's beyond our capability. That's the Holy Spirit's work. Successful evangelism makes it clear what Jesus did, makes the invitation to trust Christ, and then lets, lets the Holy Spirit work. And if the person accepts, great. If they reject, it's not your problem. You're not, you've not failed as an evangelist. So when I say you can be successful in evangelism, please understand, share the gospel, make the invitation, zip your mouth, make them answer, but you don't have to lead them to faith in Christ. That's successful evangelism. Second thing, and this is key, this is critical, Learn the gospel. Learn the gospel. First time somebody asked me how to become a believer, I spoke for 20 minutes. When I got done, they were more apt to trust Buddha than Jesus. I mean, I, it, was, it was confusing. It was a mess. I'm embarrassed about it to this day. Learn the gospel. You can learn the gospel. You just got to memorize four words. Good news, bad news, invitation. Now you're saying, Dave, that's five words. No, we'll use news twice. That's only four words, so... Good news, bad news, invitation. Try it with me. Good news, bad news, invitation. You all know the gospel already. you got to know what to say. you got to know where to go. And if you get a gospel opportunity, good news, bad news, invitation. So what's the bad news? I'm a sinner. I violated the standards and character of God. Further bad news is I'm separated from a holy God by a huge gulf because he's a holy being and I'm a sinful being. The further bad news is I can't fix it. I'm in a horrible, hopeless, helpless state. That's bad news. You can't make that news any worse. I've thought about it. I've thought about it. How could I make this news worse? You can't. It's as bad as it can be. That's the bad news. What's the good news? Jesus paid for our sin on the cross as our substitute in our place. And the further good news is that we can be saved and forgiven by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. And the invitation is... 
Is there anything keeping you from trusting Jesus right now? That's it, friends. Bad news, good news, invitation. And I'm convinced that if you take the effort to learn that particular presentation, you can have a terrific impact. Now, there's other great presentations. When I go to Cuba, I use a Romans, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And I use a physical drawing. There's a powerful, powerful gospel presentation called Three Circles. It's working very powerfully in our culture. And you can go on YouTube and just write Three Circles Evangelism. Very, very stunning. Broken circle, perfect circle. How do you get back? Through the circle of Jesus. And it's very, very effective evangelism method in our times. So I'm convinced, friends, based on Hebrews 9, that we're all going to stand before God. And he's going to say to us, why should I forgive your sin and let you live in my heaven? I've been working on my answer for 48 years. Here's what I'm going to say. You should forgive my sin and let me live in your heaven because I put all of my hope in Jesus and what he did for me in the cross. I'm trusting him alone. And if God were to say to me, what else, Dave? I'm going to say, I've got nothing else. Jesus is my plan A. I've got no plan B. That's all I have. I've been working on this answer for 48 years. There's three categories of answers you can give to God. First category is the category of works. You should forgive my sin, God, because I'm better than my neighbor. My good works outweigh my bad works. I gave 100 bucks to an orphanage. I got baptized. I go to CCC. You can give him all those works answers. And if you do, what you've said to God was, the cross of Jesus was unnecessary. God, you were foolish to kill your son because I got it done. Second category is Jesus plus works. I trust in Jesus, plus I'm better than my neighbor, plus my good works outweigh my bad works. And if you say that to God, what you're saying is, the cross of Jesus was disappointing. Jesus didn't get it done. Nice try, Jesus. Appreciate your effort. Let me, let me just finish up what you failed at. Or you can give the final category, which is Christ alone. You should forgive me because of what Jesus did on the cross. And when, if you give that answer, what you are saying is, the cross was not only adequate, it was necessary. There was no other way. Friends, if I could get you to heaven by motivating you to give 100 bucks to an orphanage or by killing my son, what would I do? I'd motivate you to give 100 bucks to an orphanage. My boy is far too precious to me if there's another way. I'll give you the 100 bucks. I'll give all of you the 100 bucks. Clean out my whole bank account. Just give this money to an orphanage and I'll save my boy. There was no other way. It was the death of Christ that was necessary. And you and I are going to stand before God and he's going to ask you the question, what are you trusting in? Friends, before you leave this world, please make this decision very clearly. Either trust Christ. Please trust Christ. Don't reject Christ. Don't postpone the decision. Just say, I'll put all my hope in Jesus, in my substitute, and what he did for me. Number three, learn how to turn a conversation toward the gospel. This is one of the most difficult things, is how do I get from a regular conversation to a gospel conversation? Friends, I was working one day for a, a landscaping company when I was in seminary. I'm working on some bushes, trimming them, and behind me a guy yelled, You saved? I didn't even know he was there. <laughs> and his first words to me are, You saved? That's a rough transition <laughs> into a gospel conversation. I don't ever suggest you just shout at somebody, you saved. 
Uh, let me give you two, two things that are just extremely helpful. One of them is called Your Story, My Story, God's Story. You meet a person, you say to them, tell me your story. And they tell you your story. I'm on an airplane two weeks ago, a guy sitting next to me, I said, tell me your story. He tells me, uh, I'm a contractor in New Zealand, I made a boatload of money, uh, I bought these two amazing 4,000 horsepower Corvettes, uh, I'm racing them on the salt flats of Utah, trying to break the land speed record in this category of car, and I was just there, and we didn't make it because the sand was too wet, and I got to go back next year, and he tells me a story. So once he tells me his story, whose turn is it? It's my turn. And I tell him my story about my teenage years and my mental illness and my brokenness and my struggle and coming to faith when I was 19 and God changing everything in my life. And what's part of my story? It's God's story. And I can come to a gospel conversation by your story, my story, God's story. Let me give you a second way. Say to a person, can I pray for you for something just right now briefly? Is there anything? I've asked this question many times. I've only had one person ever say, no, you can't pray for me. People, people are, are taken aback. They just say, yeah, uh, my mom just lost her house, or, or my boyfriend left me, or, or I can't make my car payment, or whatever, and you, and you pray for them right there. <clears throat> and when you lift your head up, you say to them, would you call yourself near to God or far from God? And if they say far from God, you say, could I take three minutes to draw a little picture for you to show you how you could be near to God? And then you draw the three circles. Brokenness, perfect world, get back there through Jesus. Uh, really natural ways to get into the gospel, but very effective ways to come into a gospel conversation. I think they're extremely important. Number four, pray. You say, God, give me some opportunities. Give me some opportunities to talk to seeking people. Let me say, friends, I don't think God is calling us to argue with combative people. If you get in a conversation with a combative person, my judgment is to say, hey, God, God bless you. Sorry for your anger. Sorry for this disagreement. You know, whatever. God bless you and move on. I want to spend my time talking to seeking people, not arguing with combative people. Now, friends, that's not to say there's not a place for apologetics. It's not to say there's not a place to hang in there for a while. But if you get a person who's flatly angry and combative, it's probably not a good investment of gospel time. Number five, get around lost people. Great fishermen are by the water and they have a line in the water. Get around lost people. However you can do it, there's 500 ways to do it. Get around lost people. Number six, relax, be calm. Don't grip the bat quite as tightly as you're gripping it. <laughs> I know, if you ever played uh, Little League Baseball and you get up there and you just you want this hit so bad and you just got hold of this bat like, ah, oh, horrible swing because you're gripping the bat too tight. You gotta relax a little bit. Friends, you're not gonna die, at least not in America. <laughs> for sharing the gospel. Relax. Say, Holy Spirit of God, help me. Loosen up your grip on the bat and just say, Lord, I, I need you to work here. Number seven, and finally, share the gospel, make the ask, and then zip your lip. Say what's true about Jesus. Make the ask to put their trust in Christ, and then close your mouth and make them answer, yes, no, or I need to think about it. Do them a favor of making them answer. Here's the big idea. With a little bit of work, friends, you can be an excellent evangelist, and that's the truth. There is some work. It's doable work. It's not that long a work. It's not that hard a work. There's some intentionality to it. You've got to learn the gospel. But with a little bit of work, you can be an excellent evangelist, 
And as Jesus said, the fields are white under harvest. They're seeking people out there. Get next to them and put a line in the water. I was sitting at my kitchen table about three weeks ago with a, with a, with a new friend of mine, wonderful guy, retired Air Force man. And we got in from a general conversation into a gospel conversation. We spent an hour and 15 minutes, and I, I just drew it out on a piece of paper, bad news, good news, invitation, you must trust Christ. And then he had a question, which was not a diverting question. It wasn't a Mount Gerizim kind of question. It was a real question about, I don't, I don't understand, Dave, how it can be this easy? How, how, couldn't I just do this and then go live like I want to live? And so we got into this great conversation, an hour and 15 minutes. He didn't trust Christ. But he heard the gospel, and he took a Bible tract home with him, and we're still in great relationship today. It was successful evangelism. Because I said what's true about the gospel, about Jesus. I asked him to trust Jesus, and I zipped my lip. And I made him answer. And he said, Dave, I'm not ready to do that now. I said, great. Great. God bless you. Happy to talk about this anytime we can. It's successful evangelism. You can do this, friends. The lie is that you can't do it. The truth is, you can. Let me pray for us. Father, we bless you for this very good day, your ongoing kindness. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and his engagement and his compassion and the remarkable way that he encountered people who were broken and dealt with them without condemnation. <clears throat> Lord, I pray for each one of us today that we would be people who do the intentional work of learning the gospel who do the intentional work of getting next to lost people and who do the intentional work of turning conversations to spiritual things. Let us get by the water and put a line in. Lord, I pray you do great things through that. We entrust ourselves to you in Christ's name with gratitude. Amen.